0: I want to first start out by welcoming everyone who's tuning in, and before we have a chance to get into the Word of God, um, pay a special honor to all of our mothers in our church community and among our faith family, beginning with my own wife. Um, We want to just wish you, ladies and sisters, a special, happy Mother's Day. We know, and I hope you know, just how much you mean to us, to our homes, um, and to our communities. You are the strength of our communities. It's your faith. It's your courage. It's your tenacity. It's your love, your grace, your faithfulness, and the way in which you live out your walk with Christ before us. That has been a great model and encouragement, I know, for me and for many other men who value your place in our homes and also in in the local church. And I'm also wanting to Hope and pray and trust that this Mother's Day, this weekend, and this season of your life is a time where you're experiencing and sensing God's grace and God's blessing upon your life, like I know, no doubt, you are. Along with that, I would be remiss, and I want to make it a point to also express uh, my prayers and my gratitude for all of our sisters. I know for many, um, this could also be a day in which it could be painful, um, either because You've experienced the loss of a child, and so every Mother's Day doesn't quite get met and received the same way it may for for other mothers. I get that. I understand that. Along with that, I know we have sisters who've tried and tried and tried, families, homes, couples, to have children, but for one reason or another, have not been able to. And again, uh, this is a time for many sisters who wish to be mothers and have a Mother's Day to celebrate. Um, can't. And so I just want to be mindful of that and and let you know you're in our prayers. We're grateful for you. We're thankful for you. You mean much to us all. And I'm praying for all of you sisters, for God to be blessing you on on this Mother's Day. Amen. With that being said, if you have your Bibles, please go on ahead and turn together with me to the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15. And today we're going to have a chance to look at the parable of the prodigal son. It's probably a parable, I'm sure, that many of you are familiar with, if not all of you. It's uh, it's a very popular parable, no doubt. One of prob- the longest parable Jesus has told. Uh, next to that, as far as a popular parable, would be the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. Rembrandt was one who painted a painting having to do with the parable of the prodigal son, Shakespeare, um, Emerson were ones who wrote plays, if not essays, having to do and surrounding the story of the prodigal son. This is a story that not only captures the hearts of Christians, but it's one that's found itself outside of the Christian community um, by those who are even non-Christian. And today we're going to have a chance to be able to find ourselves in it. But before we do, I want you to understand something, and I want you to keep something in mind as we go through this particular parable. And that's this. In order to capture the point of this story, you need to know the purpose that Jesus has in mind in the telling of it. It's going to be critical. It's not just Jesus' initial audience that he wanted to know this, it's also you and me that Jesus wants to know this as well. Um, Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This is not the first time that we see a situation where Jesus, in this chapter, is talking about something lost. We saw that in the case of um, the lost sheep. We then see it in the case of the lost coin. And now we see it in the case of this son, this son, But we're told that there's two sons and a father in this story. Now, the two sons are the two groups that are represented in Jesus' audience. All you have to do is go back to verses 1 and 2 to notice that we have a crowd, a crowd that's gathered to be able to listen to what Jesus has to say. Numbered among the crowd are those who would like to be referred to as tax collectors and sinners, Jesus calls them. Along with that, we have Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders, two polar opposite groups, two completely different groups that are represented in this crowd. And these two sons represent these two groups. The younger son represents the tax collectors and the sinners. The older son represents the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders. And the father represents, of course, our Father in heaven. We're going to have a chance to look at this here. Jesus opens up by saying, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This is um, very important for us to kind of recreate the scene because I'm not too sure it's going to be familiar with us unless we have this in mind as we're walking through, through this story. So here this son, the younger son, comes to this father and he demands, he insists that his father give him his share of the inheritance. It was customary in the Jews' day and within this ancient Eastern period that the older son would receive two-thirds of the family's inheritance and the younger son would receive one-third of the family's inheritance. But (laughs) keep this in mind, that was something that was supposed to be handed over at the time of the death of the father. Father still alive. Exactly. So you can kind of get a feel of what's going on here. You got this son approaching this father, coming to this father who's still alive, and he's asking for his share of the inheritance. If you got what I said, that this is a situation where the only ordinary occasion in which a father would hand over whatever it was that belonged to his son or sons was when he died, then what's going on here? You you have a situation where the son is essentially saying, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. I wish you were good as death. You see, land and inheritance was tied to the family's livelihood. I know we don't get that. This is foreign to us as Westerners and as people who are modern folk. But what you have to get is, a man's life and a man's identity and a family's life and a family's identity was inextricably linked to the land. So for a father to lose his property or his land was to lose his identity. For a father to lose his land, it was to lose his life. For a father to lose a part of his land was to lose his standing within his community and his status among the people in that community. This son is essentially saying to his father, I want you to tear your life apart. This son is saying to his father, it's not you that I want, it's your stuff that I want. It's not the father that I want, It's his things that I want. He's he's looking at his father in the eyes and he's basically saying, Look, you're not what I want. It's what's in your hand, it's what's in your possession that I want. More than the father being enough, he wants his stuff. He sees the father as a means to his end, not as an end in and of himself. Why is this important? It's important for this reason. As Christians, one of the ways in which you can know that you've come into a relationship with God and that you know God is this way, that God's enough. We come into a relationship with God not because of what's in his hand, but because of who he is himself. Christians, enter into a relationship with Jesus and with the Father by means of the Holy Spirit, not because of what they're getting from that relationship per se, but because of who they have. For the child of God, God's enough. For the child of God, having the Father is enough. But not so with this younger son. It wasn't enough for him to have his Father in his life. He wanted what came from his Father. There's a lot of people who, have no problem getting spiritual, getting a little religion in their life, or maybe even coming back to church or going to church or having some sort of semblance of a relationship with God. But when you really look at their lives, what you notice is were it not for the stuff in their life, you're not too sure they would still want to hang around with God. you remember Job? Job was a man who had everything in the Old Testament. He's probably the richest man of his day, but Sadly and unfortunately, life changes real quick for Job. He loses his property. He loses everything on his land. He loses all of his assets and his belongings, even his own children. And his wife looks at everything that's going on, and she says, You know, I could see why we were religious before. I could see why you cared enough to believe in God and to worship God and serve God before. But now that all of this has happened to us, how could you find it in you to still worship this God? If I were you, my counsel? Just go on ahead and curse God and die. Why? She was someone who had no problem being in a relationship with God so long as she saw the benefits that came with it. But as soon as she didn't, She didn't see any need any longer for that relationship. And what does Job say to her? He says, shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not trouble or bad? Blessed be the name of the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. Wow. How could he say that? (laughs) How could those kind of words come out of anyone, let alone Job? I'll tell you how because of the reason why he was in a relationship with God in the first place. See, that's not what we find here in this case with this younger son. He says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So not only does he want a relationship with his father only for what he can get out of it, for the stuff, he's also prepared to ask for something which was fine so long as it was the right time. He's prepared to ask for it, even if what he's basically saying at the end of the day to his father is, I wish you were dead, because that's the only time a father hands over an inheritance. It's shameful. It's a shameful situation. Um, For a young man, a son, to speak in this way, in this cultural context, would have been no doubt to heap upon himself not only a, a verbal response on the part of his father, but more than likely a physical response on the part of his father and shame that would have come from the community, but he didn't care. He was prepared. He was prepared to risk all of that for what he wanted from his father. He was prepared to risk shaming himself with this request to be able to get what he wanted. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders are listening to this along with the others. But notice the father's response. And he divided his property between them. Now, you've, you've got to understand something here. Remember who's listening in. At this point, the Pharisees are, are like, and the religious leaders are like, wait, wait, wait a second. This story cannot be true. This story does not reflect our world, our community, our culture, our beliefs, our honor system. How could the father do this? Any father now, they would say, in their right mind, not only would they not have allowed a son to be able to make a request in that way without receiving a beating or a, a verbal response, no father in their right mind in our day and age would be willing to respond by actually giving this young son what he wanted, but he does. So not only is there a shameful request, what do we have? We have a shameful response in the eyes of the Pharisees. Like, I don't get this. I, I, I don't relate, is the, what the religious person is saying. I don't relate to this story. I don't relate to this father. I don't even know a father like this. And Jesus is saying, Look, you're telling me all throughout this time now, up till this parable, you know God? You're in relationship with God, and I'm in relationship with Satan? Because up till now, the Pharisees have been after Jesus. And basically, their script and their message to all the people was, this man is in cahoots with Satan. That's why he does what he does. That's why he relates with the kind of people, tax collectors and sinners. He's, he does what he does because he's serving the purposes of Beelzebub. And, he said, and Jesus is saying, is that right? Is that right? Okay. You don't identify with this father? Can't relate? You don't, you don't see anything? that this Father is speaking to? Okay. Jesus is trying to point out to them that your view of God is going to determine what you appreciate and what you get out of this parable. And so Jesus says, no, this Father divides his property between them. This Father is experiencing perhaps the greatest rejection that any human being could experience, the greatest encounter in a relationship that any human being could experience. And what is that? Rejected love. We have no reason to believe that this son is responding to negligence on the, on the father. On the part of this father, for all we know, he's, he's a father who has no, done nothing but love his son. Serve his son. Be generous toward his son. And this is what he gets in return. I know in our day and age, there are fathers, and maybe there are some present, There are fathers who are irresponsible. There are fathers who are negligent. There are fathers who are out of the picture. There are fathers who are deadbeat dads. And there should be no surprise why we're experiencing our children growing up the way that they do. But let's just face it. This story communicates to us something else, that men, fathers, you could do everything right, and guess what could still happen? You could have a son. You could have a child that could still go in a wayward way. This father has done everything right, And yet, what is the response? A child that is not responding to the kindness of his father, the compassion of his father, the love of his father. But rather, he wants his inheritance, and he wants to go. And what does the father do? Does he say, no? No. Gives it to him. He divides the inheritance as far as what belongs to the older son and what belongs to the younger son. And he lets him. He lets him go. Just imagine the pain that must exist In that place, this son was prepared to request that his father tear his life apart in order that he may finally get what he wants. He wasn't prepared to think about what this was costing his father. And what does the father do? He does. He does. He gives him what he wants. He's he's prepared to allow his own life to be teared apart in order for the son to have what he demanded. Which is a picture that these Pharisees and these religious leaders cannot understand. They cannot fathom. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. This is the young man who grows up with the, a silver spoon in his hand. This is the young man who grows up with privilege. This is the young man who we've all had them in high school. We've all seen them in college. We've all perhaps known one or two of these in our neighborhoods where they drive the car, they they wear the shoes, they they flaunt the the attire. I mean, they've got all of the benefits all over them. And we're wondering like, man, look at that kid. And here he takes his inheritance and he gets his new car and He's got a new condo and a new pair of shoes, new pair of clothes, and he's all souped up. He's all decked out because of the, the money that he has now in his pocket, and he's gone. He's gone. He's gone off to the far country. This is, a, this is equivalent to the guy who, who says, look, I'm done with this Midwest. I, I, I'm tired of Kansas. I'm, I'm, I'm done with Idaho or wherever else I may be. I'm headed to Vegas. Vegas. I'm. Head, what do they say about Austin? Austin. What What do they say about Austin? Is that the place where uh, they keep everything weird? I'm going to Austin. All right. I'm headed to the Big Apple. I'm headed to Frisco. I'm going to L.A. This is the person who's like, Look, I'm tired of this Midwest. I'm headed to the big city. So here he is in the big city, the concrete jungle. This is where it happens, right? He's got all this money in his pocket goes to bars and he's at strip clubs he's frequenting prostitutes he's he's living it up he's rounds on me and he's just spending like crazy he's probably got a luxury apartment downtown somewhere and here he is buying what money can buy and then the bible tells us but when he had spent everything a severe famine arose so here he is Living it up the way that he is, but around the same time, something that he didn't expect, it wasn't necessarily tied to his sin and to his squandering, but nevertheless, a famine arises in that country and he begins to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Can you believe that? So here he is, he's thinking, I finally get to do what I want. I'm tired of people telling me what to do. I'm tired of my dad on my back. I'm tired of everyone having a plan for my life. It's about time that I do what I want. It's about time that I do my thing. Enough with these people. And so he buys him a car, he buys him a whole new wardrobe, and he finds him in a whole new city, a big city, where he could do all that he wants without any consequences, he imagines, thinking that that's where life is, that's where his freedom is going to be found. And guess what happens? A famine strikes him. A famine strikes him in the very land that he ends up. This is a man who was living well beyond his means, and now he's down and out. His world has just turned upside down overnight. Now he doesn't have enough to pay for his luxury condo. He doesn't have enough to be able to continue to finance that expensive vehicle. It's repoed. His clothes, he's got to pawn at the shop. His house, he's got to put on the market or foreclose. The economy has taken a downturn. Real estate has taken a downturn. Investments bottomed out. And here this man is, poor, homeless, hungry, hungry, jobless, wondering, what do I do now? And so he looks for a job. He lines himself up with the day workers, looking for anything to do just to be able to scrap together some dollars to be able to feed himself for his day. Not only did he make a shameful request, he's in a shameful country. He's in Gentile territory. For a Jew... Hearing this story, it's unheard of. It's like, what are you doing, a Jew, in Gentile land? Not only is he in Gentile land, he ends up getting hired by a Gentile. And where does he get placed? With something that is not kosher for Gentiles pigs. This is getting bad. (laughs) This is getting real bad. And here he is having to be among these pigs. And what does the text tell us in verse 17? But when he came to himself, here he is, he's having time to, to not only make choices that are painful, he's having a chance to live with the consequences of those choices. He's saying, what did I do? How foolish can I be? How was it that I could get it into my father to want to have my inheritance? How could, did my father even deserve something? No, he didn't. What on earth am I doing? How could I ever go back? Because in that day, you have to understand, for a son to do what he did, it wasn't just the fact that the son did what he did. Anytime a son makes a, a, bra- a brazen move, a bold move, the way that he did, it's customary in that Jewish period for the family and sometimes for the community to come together and hold a funeral. Yeah, they would hold a funeral. They would hold a funeral because it was a shame. You need to keep in mind something. The culture of this day, the particular setting that Jesus is speaking to is a shame and honor culture. What I mean by that is you avoid what's shameful and you do what's honorable. It's what you do. The son's request was shameful. And anytime time a move or a request like that is made, the family holds a funeral. And the funeral is, whole, is held in the name of and on behalf of the son that shamed that family. So as far as this family is concerned, in the eyes or the mind of the father in his community, he's dead. He's no longer a son. There's no longer a place in the son's mind as he's thinking for me. Why even bother Trying to go back. And he's wondering, could I ever get up and get out from this situation? Maybe some of us have been in a place like that where we're looking months later, years later, how foolish could I be? Everybody was trying their best to get it into my mind. And here I am, down and out with nothing to my name, no shoes on my feet. No clothes that in any sort of way communicates the honor that I once had. No home, no shelter over my head. He says to himself, but when he came to himself. (laughs) You see, even though it got bad, this is good. Jesus says, look, though that was true of him, there came a point where This young man came to himself the same way many of you who are Christians right now, who at one time came to yourself by God's grace. What that means is, until and unless you and I come to ourselves, we'll never go back to God. We'll never know anything of God. We'll never see the value of returning back into a relationship with God. This is important for us who have a heart for somebody who's out there and lost and far from us to be able to talk to, to be able to love upon. And the temptation for you and me, parents, pastors, leaders, Christian, is to want to manipulate the situation. Amen? That's what we do sometimes. Sometimes we force a God situation. And God is like, no, 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 no. Don't don't do that. Don't do that. I'm glad the father didn't do this. Yes, he was pained. He didn't celebrate the fact that his son left, but he knew he couldn't violate his free will. He knew that he didn't want to interfere with the fact that if that Choice that you want to make, then go. If that's an action that you want to take, then go. You'll notice that many of you have, have been there before. Some of you are there right now, and you're realizing God's not picking up my hand and helping me drink this bottle, or smoke this joint, or go into this club, or do these shameful things with these people, nor is God holding my arm back as I'm moving toward the bottle. And you're wondering, wow. And this prodigal son has seen the fact that his choices, not God's, his actions are the ones that have led him to the far country. But because God is gracious, when it's God's time, it's God's time. Here, we're seeing God's time. How do we know? Because there's no other way that this young man, with the kind of life that he was leading, would be able to come to himself. You see, when somebody comes back to God in the right time, they stay. When somebody comes back to God and to God's house in God's time, it's a real move of God. But when we get out of God's way and when we start doing our thing in God's name, it doesn't turn out the way we're about to see it right now. And I'm thankful that this prodigal son, this young son came to this point because what do we see here? How many, he says, of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? What does he know? He knows something about his father. You see, what's beginning to give him hope is what he remembers about his father. He doesn't remember a father that beat him, he doesn't remember a father that mistreated him, he doesn't remember a father that was not compassionate toward him. See, this is good news. This is encouraging for us because even if somebody may not be where they need to be in this season of their life, the sort of investment that you made in that kid's life, in that person's life, will reap eventually. God's word does not return to him void. That's what the Bible tells us. And so all of that time that that father spent in his son's life, all of the investment that he made all of the words that were exchanged, all of the love that he shared with his son, guess what? It's all coming back to the fore. And so even though this son is in this muck, is in this mire with these pigs, guess what? Those memories of his time with his father, those memories of scripture and prayer and with his father loving upon him are all coming back to the surface. And he says, how many of my father's hired servants Have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father. What did he just say that he was going to do? He's going back to his father. He's going back to his dad. Notice in verse 18, where does it say that he's going to go to? It doesn't say he's going to go to church, it doesn't say he's going to go to a building. It doesn't say he's going to go to a... No, he says he's going to go back to his father. There are many people who, even though they've wasted their lives, all they've come back to, even though we see them, is a building. Coming back to a building is not the same thing as coming back to a father. Coming back to services and programs is not the same thing as coming back to the Father. Coming back to your youth group is not the same thing as coming back to the Father. Coming back to your Sunday school or your life group or that favorite Sunday service of yours is not the same thing as coming back to the Father. It may well be included, but it's not the same thing. You see, this son knew that there was nothing for me with that community as far as he was concerned. If he were to show up, They would shame him, and they would kick him out the same way he came in. That house was nothing in and of itself. What belonged in that house was nothing in and of itself. It was who he knew was in that house where his hope lied. I want you to keep this in mind, friend. Maybe there's somebody who happens to be, man, it's been a while since you've been back in God's house. It's been a while since you've been walking with God. You can't remember the way you would like to, the days that you used to spend in God's presence with God's people. But now you've come to yourself and you're beginning to think, is it time? Have I gone too far? Have I sinned too much? Is there any way that this God would want to have anything to do with me or even His people? I want to tell you where to start. Don't start with the building. Don't start with the address. Don't start with the campus. Don't even start with the church people. Start with your father. Start with your father. People will fail you. Buildings will fail you. We can't even meet in them right now. <laughs> okay? Start with your father. This prodigal son is starting with his father. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants and he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Some of you are in that same situation. You're a long way off, and you're thinking to yourself, what's the point? It's been five years since I've been at that church. It's been three years since I've been back in the house of God. It's been too many years. It's been too long since I've been walking with God, reading my Bible, and praying regularly, and fellowshipping with God's people. What's the point? I mean, especially, look at my life, and look at what I've done with it. You feel a long way off, like this prodigal son felt a long way off. The Bible says, but while he was a long way off, who was seeing him? Who was looking out for him? The Father. While you're in that house of yours or in that apartment of yours or while you are keeping a distance from God and from his church and from his people, guess what God is doing? He's thinking of you. He's looking out for you. He's preparing for you. He's interested in you. You see, God doesn't have to wait for you to begin to love you and show grace to you and kindness toward you. God's doing it anyways. This prodigal son did not know That this father was on the lookout. This father had every right, every opportunity, every justification to want to say, you know what? I don't want to think of him. Nobody mentioned his name, but he didn't. Even though this father took, this son took his inheritance and left his father, and no doubt it brought pain to him. Guess what? This father always had a place in his heart for this lost son. The father always has a place for you, even if you may feel like you're too far to ever be reached. This son right now feels like he's too far along while he was a long ways off. This son feels like he was too far to be able to reach. He's probably thinking in his mind, what? Am I stupid? Why am I walking back to I already know what's going to happen. What's the use? I need to start turning back. I don't see any point in this. But then he's thinking, wait a second, I remember the kindness that my father showed me. I remember the love, the conversation. I remember his grace. And he's thinking, nah, things have changed. I mean, after all, he's written me off. There's been a funeral in my name. And then here he's thinking, wait a second, the compassion that he's shown to even my servants in my home. And I remember time and again where he forgave me of, of many things. And so as he's thinking, while he's a long ways off, his father saw him, the Bible says. But not only did he see him, end of verse 20, he felt compassion. (laughs) So here's the Pharisees, here's the Sadducees, listening to Jesus tell this story with these crowds. You know what they're saying? As soon as they hear that, they're like, okay, let's hear about this father. We know how fathers are in our community. Some of us are fathers. They're thinking. And Jesus is telling this story that includes a father. And what does he say? He says this father saw this rebellious son, this shameful son, and he felt compassion in his heart toward this son. You know what's happening with the Pharisees? <laughs> they're like, no way. Time out. Can't be. Not in our community. You're all wrong. It's a lie. Untrue. Untrue. Show me somebody who's like that. And you know what Jesus is saying? Exactly, exactly. If you don't relate with this father, you don't know God. That's what Jesus is doing. If you can't see the God that you claim to know more than me in this father, you don't know God. That's what Jesus is saying. They can't imagine a father feeling. Well, no, no. they can imagine a father feeling something, but not compassion. The Bible says he felt compassion. You know what they would have included if it were up to them to write the parable? The father felt anger. I hope this encourages you because your sin and the guilt and the shame associated with the sin is already enough. What you need to know is when the father looks at you, he feels compassion. He feels compassion towards you. The Bible says that Jesus looked on the masses and he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd, like sheep without a shepherd. And this father is looking at a lost sheep who's now on his way to returning, a long ways off, and he sees him, and what does he do? He feels nothing but what? Compassion. Compassion. That's important. I'm afraid some of you men can't remember, you young men can't remember a time where you've had a father show you and feel toward you this kind of compassion. Fathers, when was the last time that you could honestly remember where you've, you've shown this kind of compassion toward your own sons, toward your own children, toward your own daughters? Some of us don't identify this for one reason or another. You see, as fathers, men, we're called to be both tough and tender. Did you hear that? Both tough and tender. When we're only tough, men, we abuse our families. When all we are is tender, fathers, we're in no position to be able to protect our families. God wants us to be both tough and tender. His father is both tough and he's tender. Okay? He's, he's tender toward his family But he's tough for his family. And this father here feels what? Compassion. But even more, it goes on. (laughs) This is, they they cannot, as though Jesus has already upset them. Not only does he feel compassion, what does the text say? And ran. No, you see, you you probably don't get this, but what you need to understand is Eastern men don't run, okay? (laughs) Middle Eastern men don't run. Uh, when, have you, when have you seen, even in our own day and age, I think, when have you ever seen at a park or in a neighborhood or anywhere a Middle Eastern man, older man, this is a Middle Eastern older man or a Far Eastern older man, no, no, they walk with their hands behind their back and, and they stroll, they may have conversations, but you'll never see a man running, older man running in this day and age. See, this was an, deliberate. Jesus is purposely cutting against the grain of the mindset of these religious leaders. Because this parable is not the parable of the prodigal son. You're going to see that in a moment. It's a parable of something else, but I'm going to save that for a second. So Jesus describes this father, contrary to whatever these Pharisees would have imagined, as a man who is running. And the word that's used for running is the same word that you use for racing in competition. So we're not talking about power walking. We're not talking about brisk walking. We're not even talking about jogging. This man is racing where he's huffing and he's puffing, okay? And Middle Eastern men, it was a shame. It was a dishonor for a man to run. Kids run. Youth run. Women run. Older men, they don't run. In order to run, you would have had to have a rope. Yeah, right, you, you have these robes that they wear, which is an honor system. They, they cover themselves, not just the women, but the men. And in order for a man to run, you know what he would have had to do? He would have had to pick up his gown, lift it from the middle, pull it up to where now it looks like a woman's skirt. His legs, from his knees down or even higher, would have had to be exposed, which was also a shame and a disgrace. And on top of that, he's running At breakneck speed toward who? Toward his son. What is Jesus saying to these Pharisees, to these religious leaders? If, remember what I said in the beginning of my message, how you see God, how you view God, what you think of God is going to determine what you get out of what Jesus is teaching here. And Jesus is blowing out of the water whatever conception, whatever view these leaders thought they had of God and what they thought God was like. Not only does he feel compassion, he runs. Not only does he run, he embraces him, which is a picture of full forgiveness, which is a picture of full reconciliation, the way he embraces him. It's over. It's done. Your past is your past. You're home now. And that's all that matters. That's what that embrace has to do with. And along with that, as though it's not good enough already. He kisses him. Friends, this father kisses his son. These Pharisees are, they're about to say, if this man doesn't stop speaking, the father kisses, he grabs him, he kisses him on the, he kisses him all over. Literally in the Greek, what we're told is, he kept kissing him. This isn't just a, he's all over him, if you will. You know what it says in Zephaniah, in Zephaniah. It speaks beautifully of the way in which God is over us. Friend, I want you to see this Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Now watch this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is unheard of for God to do. This was, this was shameful in their day and DNA for, for an older father, or an older man, to do that God was too big. Some of us have a too transcendent, transcendent view of God to where we can't acknowledge his nearness, and that's wrong. Some of us have a God who's too near to where he's buddy-buddy, And we keep forgetting the fact that he's God and we're not. That we're made in and after his image, not him in and after ours. What God wants us to have is a God who's big but also near. A God who's both transcendent and imminent. And here in this Father, what do we see? We see a God who's come down and who is prepared to love on us. Quiet us with his love and exult over us with loud singing, the Bible says, loud singing. And so here he kisses him, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and be- I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father said to his servants. It's like, he can not even get his speech out, his planned speech out. Here this son is. He's like, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm, I don't know, I'm not even deserving of being your son. And he's waiting for it. He knows he's going to get the hits. He knows he's about to get a lick in and he's like, look, I'm ready for it. I deserve it. I know I've been going too far. I shouldn't have done it. So just give it to me and let's get it over with. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I don't even deserve to be your son. So give it to me. But nothing happens. He's like, What? All right, maybe he's maybe he's looking for the rod and he's and he looks. What? and rather than being met with the back of his father's hand what is he met with he's met with his father's response which just not only blew the pharisees and the religious leaders minds it's blowing his he, i mean he said this is i can't he can't believe this yes he came back but he came back because he had no choice and he all he had was a hope that his father may be this way. But now he's realizing this wasn't just something to hope for. My father is actually this way. It's one thing to hope that somebody is going to be one way. It's another thing to find out that that's exactly how they've received you. And that's what this son is noticing. And what does the father say in verse 22? The father says, get me the whip. Get me the rod so I can really give it to this kid. No, 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 no. He really needs to understand what he did, what he put his mother and me through, the embarrassment and the shame that he brought upon us. How dare you? Do you know what I had to live with? My name is gone. My status is gone. My, my standing in this community is gone. No one respects us. We're looked upon as, as mockery and as, as the scoff of our town. How dare you come back? Instead, in verse 22, what do we find out? The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. (laughs) Bring quickly the best robe. Notice the word there, quickly. That's salvation right there. That's a picture. That's revelation. I hope you got that. That's what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us. He says, bring quickly. That's what God does. Here we are. We, We blew our lives. We wasted our lives away. We knew better, and now here we are trying to make our way back to God as best we know how, thinking that we're going to have to come up with some spiel. We're going to have to work our way back into good standing with God. We're going to have to do something in order to find his pleasure all over again. We're going to have to tip the scale back in our favor, and God doesn't even give give us a chance. God says, look, I'm not even going to give you a chance to clean up. That's why he's giving him the robe. He's like, Look, I know you're dirty. I know you are homeless. I know you're without shoes. I know you stink. I know you smell. I know you're hungry. I know you look like filth. I know you're hardly recognizable. But I'm not going to wait for you to clean up. I'm not going to wait for you to take a bath. I'm not going to wait for you to try to do anything to win my favor. Cover my son. Cover my son with a robe. Cover him with my dignity. You see, what a robe represented in that day and age was status. A certain robe, kind of like Joseph received a robe in the Old Testament from his father, right? A robe, by looking at it, you can tell the sort of status that someone occupies. A robe communicated dignity. Men, we all got our best suit in our closet. Sometimes we may be in, in uh, Tuesday clothes, Friday casual clothes, but if they come a special occasion and that we have to go to, we all got that suit, that best suit, that blue suit. We all got that one suit that we pull out when we know the time is right. And what does this father do? He pulls it out, not for himself, but for this son who doesn't deserve it, as a way to say, I want to confer upon him the dignity that belongs to me, the honor that belongs to me, the status that belongs to me upon him. The very thing that I deserve I want to cover him with undeservingly. Quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him. But he's not done. This is a father who's just lavishing him with his grace. Not only does he give him a robe to be covered with, he says, put a ring on his, hat, on his hand. You see, in that day, a ring was a way that you transacted business. A ring was a way that you demonstrated authority. So he's saying, confer by putting a ring on him, he's saying, confer authority upon this kid. It would be like saying, get all the credit cards, and I want them in his name. All right? Get the notary republic. Let's get, let's get the, a legal document to put in writing what has taken place and how determined I am to receive him and make sure he knows that whatever is in his past is in his past, and it will not be brought up again give him a ring. I want to give him authority. I want to give him status. I want to give him dignity. And here, he gives him a ring to put on his hand. Along with that, he puts shoes on his feet. You see, slaves didn't wear shoes. Sons do. He says, you're no slave in my house. I know you came to me saying, look, I don't deserve to be your son. Because after all, they had a funeral in his name, right? He says, look, I'm totally fine being a slave, a servant like anyone else. He says, nope, I'm about to put shoes on your feet to be able to show the sort of place that he's about to give him. Verse 23, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You see, they don't eat meat every day. That's important for us to understand. If you bring meat out, you know this is a special occasion. And he says here, we're about to have a party. We're about to have a barbecue. You see, Christianity is not about, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live. And here he's saying, look, my son was dead to me and to this family and to this community as far as we, cons- we were concerned. But now he's alive. He's back. He's back. And therefore, this is cause to celebrate. <laughs> Look, get the event coordinator. Get the party coordinator. Where's the MC? Call a DJ. We need a playlist put together. We need to get the bar- barbecue, get the propane, bring it in. Let's have a party. Get the music going call the people this is an occasion to celebrate this is the picture of salvation you see in, in the parable of the lost sheep the bible says there verse 7 just so i tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance Again, in the parable of the lost coin, verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's joy. There's joy, the joy of God over one sinner. We don't need to wait for a hundred to repent and to come to Christ. All it takes is what? One, just one, just one came back. And that was enough for this father to go out of his way to be able to communicate what this moment means to him. What this moment means to him. Verse 25, act two in the story. Act one was the younger son. And here we heard the older son alluded to, but now here he comes. Now, his older son was in the field, so he wasn't present. He wasn't at the party when it got started. And as he came and drew near, he pulls up into the parking lot he pulls into the driveway. He, he hears a bunch of music. He seats all sorts of people through the window of the house. He sees people gathering in the backyard. He, it smells like barbecue. And as he's drawing near to the house, he heard music and dancing. There's even dancing going on. And he called one of the servants and asked, What's, what's up? Whose birthday? Whose shower? Whose wedding? Whose party? Uh, What's this all about? And he said to him, uh, Your brother's back. Your brother's come. huh? Your father has killed the fat calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And you would think the, the older brother would be like, Really? Really? My brother is back? No. Where is he? You got to take me to him. I wish that were the case but it's not, verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. You remember what the father felt when he saw the son from afar off? Compassion. Remember what I said the Pharisees and the religious leaders thought that Jesus would say the father would feel as soon as he saw his son? Anger. How do we see the older son responding? Anger. What is Jesus trying to point out? This is you, Pharisees. This is you, religious leaders. Whether you know this or not, going into this parable, you need to know this now, is what Jesus is saying. See? Far from this parable being about the parable of the prodigal son or the younger son, it's really a parable about the older son. Jesus is trying to communicate to these Pharisees and these religious leaders something important because even though they may have a wrong view of God which keeps them from being able to have a relationship with God Jesus out of love for them wants to change that if they're willing but we're going to see if that's going to be the case what Jesus is trying to point out is what he said in Luke chapter 5 and verse 30 those who are well have no need of a physician but only those who are what that's right sick the son of man did not come to call the righteous to repentance, self-righteous, but sinners. The reason why these Pharisees are appalled at the fact that, that Jesus would have a, a character in this story played out in this way is because it really describes their heart. It describes them. And the reason why they're upset and infuriated that he would describe a father as being this kind of a father is because that's not the picture that they have of God as their father. And so this son is angry, and he refuses to go in. And so his father, since he's not going to come in, what does his father do? Somebody must have come to him and say, uh, I hate to disturb you in this party, but your older son is out, outside. What? How come he doesn't come in? He doesn't, there's a party. He, says, he, he knows why the party's going on, and he's upset. What? Yeah, he's angry. So what does the father do? He says, all right. He leaves the party. He leaves his younger son. He goes out of the house to meet his older son in the driveway, if you will. And say, son, there's a party in there. Did you hear? Your your, your son is here. Aren't you going to join us? I mean, there's there's dancing. There's music. There's great food. And we're all in here celebrating and praising God. What's his response? Verse 29. Look, you. This was actually an offense at that time that we're trying to bring out in our English language. He doesn't even address him as father. He doesn't address him with respect or with dignity or honor that he deserves. He says, look, you look. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, have we forgotten that? You killed the fattened calf for him? And the father says to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, in this parable, we have have two sinners. We have two individuals. We have a, a young son and an older son. And the point that Jesus is trying to make is to ask us, who are you? Who am I? You see, the younger son represents the rebellious son. The older son represents the religious son. The, the younger son is the son that represents the re- re- rebellious son who lives out his sin and builds an identity around his unrighteousness. The religious person is someone who sins by building an identity around their self-righteousness. The younger son's sin is external, for all to see and visible. The older son is internal and invisible, for no one but themselves and God to see. The young son, younger son's sin is obvious, right? Prostitutes, bars, clubs, strip clubs, drunkenness, alcoholism, drugs—you name it. The typical societal sins that we're all aware of. Everybody sees that. Everybody recognizes that. The problem is in the case of the older son, because his sin is his sin is internal, and because it's invisible, it's the other kinds of sins. Nevertheless, they're still sins just like the younger sons. They're sins of pride and sins of self-righteousness and sins of, of a critical spirit and greed and covetousness. Both are sinners. And even though each of them may sin in their own way, each of them have the same problem before God. You see, both of these sons used their father. Both of these sons took advantage of their father. Both of these sons had a confidence somewhere else other than their father's love. In the case of the younger son, his confidence was in the fact that I'm just going to do what I'm going to do and nobody is going to stop me. It's about time I do my thing. And I'm tired of people giving me their opinions. I'm out of here. It's time for me to express myself. It's time for me to begin to live the way I wanna live. It's time for me to come up with my own rules. It's time for me to self actualize and self express and be autonomous and be independent and, and do my own thing. That's the rebellious son. The religious person sees that and says, well, that's exactly what I'm not going to do. In fact, that's something I wouldn't even think of doing. You see, the rebellious son takes pride and confidence in their rebellion and their self-expression. The religious person takes pride. They just take pride not in their rebellion and self-expression. They take pride in their self-righteousness. And their moral conformity, how much they're not like other people. But in both cases, their confidence is in something else other than their father. You see, even though their sins may have been different, they had one thing in common. They were both aiming with their lives to try to live a life apart from their father. In the case of the younger son, The way he sought to live a life apart from a relationship with his father was by actually going away and being apart from his father physically as well as everything else. In the case of the older son, he was also seeking to live a life apart from having a relationship with his father. The only reason why we don't notice it is why he's still in the house. That's why. There are a lot of people who are in the church but don't have a relationship with God. And when they see people who have quite a past get saved and revival break out and come into the house of God and begin to be used by God, they look at that and say, wait a second, slow down, slow down. Uh-uh, uh-uh. You got to pay first. Mm-mm-mm. You're not going to be received like that. And my question for us is this. Do we have the Father's heart? You see, the reason why the father had to go out of the house and receive his son the way that he did is because in that community, they mirror and reflect the sort of posture and attitude the father will have. So if the father met his son with a beating and a verbal assault, the community would have joined him in support. But if the father met him with compassion and love and grace, guess what? The community was going to be, do the same. What's the point? It's this. If God receives, A sinner, we need to receive a sinner. If God forgives someone, we need to forgive someone. If God shows compassion to someone, we need to be prepared to show compassion to them. If God is ready to overlook their faults, we need to be prepared to overlook their faults. If God is ready to start all over again with them, we need to be prepared to start all over again with them. You see, the way that this father showed all of this toward his son and the way he does it toward you and toward me is through Jesus. Jesus is how the father shows compassion. Jesus is how the father embraces us. Jesus is how the father kisses us. Jesus is how the father blesses us. Jesus is how the father adopts us. Jesus is how the father puts a robe of righteousness around us. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. You've seen the Father. You've seen the Father. Which son are you? In which direction is your heart inclined to go? Because every one of us are different. Are you the rebellious type? Where you're the type who likes to come up with your own moral code. You like to just run away. I'm tired of this city. I'm out of here. I'm going to go do my own thing. I don't want to think about the consequences. I just want to live it up. And I'm tired of what people's opinions are about the choices I make with my life. It's my life after all, isn't it? Are you that type? Where you find your identity in expressing yourself because that's an idol. In both cases, there's a God substitute. There's something other than God that we're worshiping and focus. Anything that you focus on, anything that you're confident in is your God okay? In the case of the younger rebellious son, his God was his self-expression. I got to be me, don't I? You want me to deny myself? And so his identity was in something else other than God. In the case of the religious person, maybe that's you. Are we we the religious person who we take pride in? (laughs) I would never do that. I I conform myself to to people's ways. I, I go along with the crowd, and I love to please people, and I love to do everything good. You see, It wasn't wasn't the fact that this religious person, this older person, sinned that was his problem. It was the fact that he did everything good that was his problem. So, if the answer is not self expression or the answer is not law compliance or conformity to people's ways or, or God's law, then what is it? It's this you and I need to put our confidence in this Father who was prepared to pay any cost to be able to have these sons of his, even though they didn't deserve it. That's where our confidence belongs. You know, there's an elder son in this story, other than these two sons. There's a third son, which is really, surprise, surprise, what this parable is about. There's a third son. He's the one who's telling the story. Even though this younger son didn't get out of his older brother, what would have been helpful? His brother should have been the one. Remember what the father said, all that is mine is yours, isn't it? The older brother is right. It is his. But he was angry that he was sharing it with this younger son, with this younger brother. What this older son should have done was have the same compassion, the same pain toward his brother like his father had toward his younger son. And the same desire and hope that he would return someday like his father did. And the same willingness to want to leave his home and his land to look for him. But he didn't. He didn't. He wrote him off. And so Jesus holds forth this lousy, older brother that this son had to live with and had to do with so that you and I may long for a bigger brother, another brother, namely Jesus Christ. Because even though this older son failed to be what his younger brother needed him to be, you and I have an older brother who has done everything we needed. This older brother was not prepared to come out of his pocket to be able to lavishly celebrate his brother's return. Jesus has done more than come out of his pocket. He's given you and me his life in our place. For our sins, so that He might have us forever. Friend, I don't know where you are, whether you see yourself in the younger brother or you see yourself in the older brother, but I want you to know this. No matter where you are, God wants to make sure that where your confidence is placed, it's not in self expression, nor is it in being religious and having it together and trusting, because in both cases, they're still trusting in themselves. They're still trying to make a way themselves. God wants you to abandon your approach, your means, your plans, no matter what. And he wants you to be confident in the fact that you know that there is a Father who loves you and who is prepared to show that love by paying the greatest cost to be able to have you back even when you don't deserve it. I want to leave you with this. In fact, I want to pray together with us. Will you join me? Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this message. I thank you for this word. I thank you, Lord God, that no matter where we find ourselves on our spiritual journey, there is hope. God, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, encourage the people who are tuning into this message. There are some who may feel like they are far from God and that there is no hope of return. There are others who who feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, I've, I've been in the house of God the whole time, I've never been like them, I've never done like them, I've never behaved like them, but that's where their confidence is, it's not in you. And God, you're saying, look, we need to repent not only of our sins, we also need to repent of our righteousness, especially our self-righteousness. We need to repent of the good things that we've done because our confidence is in them. Where I want our trust to be, Father, and I'm praying it will be with everyone tuning in, is that we would take our eyes off of ourselves and place them upon you. And how willing and how able and how desirous you were to receive us back to yourself no matter what. God, would you do this? We pray. Bless your people. We thank you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.